following sermon was originally preached in 2019 in a series on Acts at Horizon Reformed Christian Fellowship. It's being re-released here to just further the conversations we're currently enjoying in our small groups at New City Presbyterian this term. Uh, Many thanks to Horizon for granting us permission to do that, and to God be the glory. Well, uh, welcome back to the story of the church as it becomes established, the church that Jesus is building, if you remember last week's passage. Uh, Luke told us at the start of this book of Acts that in his first book, his gospel, uh, he described all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. And uh, therefore, by implication, he told us there that this book now, Acts, is the story of what Jesus continued to do from that point. That was Acts chapter 1, verse 1, just to refresh your memory. It's been seven days. The opening premise to the whole book we're looking at is that, and, and we looked at the first paragraph or so last week, and uh, we realized that it summarized everything that Jesus uh, did and said uh, between his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, he appeared to the apostles over a period of 40 days. He gave them many convincing proofs. He continued to teach them about the kingdom of God, and uh, he outlined what he was going to do through them after that, Uh, in verse 8 when he said, uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And he instructed the apostles to go back to Jerusalem to wait uh, for this coming of the Holy Spirit because the story coming up is not the story of their mission, it's the story of God's mission. And as we open up the next few paragraphs this morning together, It's worth us remembering that framework. That's the framework to the whole book. This mission uh, that Acts records for us is not uh, our mission or the church's mission. This is God's mission. God promised all through the scriptures that he would save people from their sin. That was God's promise. And and this is what God has done once for all time in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, the Son of God, was, was sent by the Father to lay down his life to atone for our sin. He was crushed for our iniquity. This is all God's work. The penalty for our sin has now been met and paid for by Jesus Christ, and so forgiveness can now be freely offered to people in his name. This is all God's work. This is how our merciful God has restored a broken and sinful people to himself. And at the cross there of Jesus Christ, the Son of God is crucified and justice is met in a way that allows mercy to flow. It's beautiful. It's it's the story of God's redemption of us. And everyone who repents and receives this good news of what God has done receives forgiveness. They are reconciled to God and they are are brought into eternal life in Jesus' name. That is the gospel. That is how God fulfilled everything he promised in scriptures to save sinners like you and I, to save us out of our sin and bring us back to himself. And this book of Acts that we're about to journey through uh, for the next while is the historical narrative of how Jesus, now ascended and seated on high, uh, continued uh, what he's doing. He works by the Holy Spirit through his people to spread that gospel message to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus meant there when he said back there in verse 8 that the apostles would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The apostles will declare to the world Jesus' death for us and his resurrection, 
which is the sign of his victory over everything he promised. He has conquered sin and death on our behalf. And uh, it's a sign that validates the eternal life that he promised to us, to everyone who believes in him. That's what's coming up. But before that gospel mission gets underway, we've got this uh, passage here at the end of chapter 1 to try to get our heads around. It's as if everything's on pause for a minute while something takes place, while they wait there for a week for this coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and this passage introduces us, I guess, in a way to, to the flip side of Jesus' mission, uh, the people that he's going to work through in that mission. And specifically, this passage focuses our attention on the apostles as they wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, as Jesus just instructed them to. There are other believers involved. There's brothers and sisters all around, as Luke points out, and often does. But Luke's focus has been on the apostles since verse 2, if you'd like to cast your eyes back to the beginning of this book. He's been focused on the apostles, and so that's something that we've just got to tune into as we journey through this book. Without forgetting that this is God's mission, of course. We need to now think about these particular people who he starts working through, these apostles so that he's commissioned for this, uh, this work here. And Luke hasn't recorded everything that these apostles did in that week while they're waiting. Now, there's a couple of general comments about what life was like in that week, but there's only really one specific thing that he documents for us here, and it's all about this replacement of Judas Iscariot with another 12th apostle, Matthias. Matthias is called so as to complete the twelveness of the apostles, if I can put it that way. And that's what we need to focus on. There's other details in the narrative here that our minds want to race after and chase after, but the big question in this passage is all about the twelve apostles. And I think the questions we need to ask come under the categories of, of who and how and why uh, when it comes to these twelve apostles. As we come to the who, if we can start with that, uh, we probably should first clarify the word itself. The word apostle means if we wanted to translate it, uh, a sent one or a messenger, a uh, commissioned agent might be a good modern equivalent, or even better, a, an authorised representative. And when Luke is using uh, the word apostle, he is almost always using it in reference to the 12 apostles. In other books in the Bible, the word is used more generally sometimes of, of other, uh, other ministry workers like James or Timothy or Silvanus. Uh, and later on, in Acts, Paul is specially commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles, as we say. And so, so Paul often, in his writings, he calls himself an apostle. But in Luke's writing, he only uses the word in that more general kind of way in one passage. Otherwise, every time Luke says apostles, he's talking about these 12 men. So as we work through Acts, keep that in mind. And uh, as we think about who these particular 12 men are, uh, uh, he lists out 11 of them at the start of the passage there in verse 12. He says, then they, uh, they being the apostles, of course, reflecting back to verse 2 uh, from last week's passage, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, and then finally Luke specifies for us who they are that he's talking about. He says, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These are the faithful 11 of the 12 whom Jesus originally called to himself. 
You can read up more about these people in Matthew chapter 10, we read earlier, Mark chapter 3, Luke 6, and uh, aside from that calling to apostleship, the, the Gospels also give us, for some of them, uh, their individual calling as just disciples to begin with, before they were commissioned as apostles. And you can follow that up in Matthew 4 and Mark 1 and Luke 5 and John 1. You know where to find it. It's at the beginning part of the Gospels generally, when they were first called as disciples. But apart from their names and their calling, the, the Bible doesn't really say a great deal about these 12 men. Who they were doesn't seem to be the relevant factor. It doesn't seem to be the thing that we need to know. Perhaps Luke gives us some food for thought here when he says in uh, verse 24 about the replacement there uh, that uh, he, he, that they pray and they say, you, Lord, are the one who knows people's hearts. We can list out their names, but we don't know the hearts of these men. The, the, the Bible uh, doesn't tell us their personalities or their reputations or their characters, uh, generally speaking. It's just not spelt out for us. All we need to know, apparently, is that they were called by the Lord who knows every heart called and commissioned to fulfil uh, some kind of special role in his mission. And there are 11 now, of course, because uh, as, Je as Jesus foreknew and Jesus foretold many times, one of them, uh, Judas, not, not this Judas, uh, the other Judas, Judas Iscariot, betrayed him and turned away from his part in this apostolic ministry to go to his own place, as Peter puts it here in verse 25. Uh, so this passage is all about Judas Iscariot's replacement. And as we follow the narrative, one of the apostles who we do actually know something about, Simon called Peter, he does the speaking. During this week, while the apostles are all gathered together and of one accord are devoting themselves to prayer, Peter declares that just as the scriptures about Judas Iscariot's betrayal and apostasy had to be fulfilled, so too there are other scriptures about Judas's replacement that have to be fulfilled. He says in verse 24, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Peter quotes from two psalms there, a little bit from Psalm 69 and a little bit from Psalm 109. Uh, those two psalms are about the Messiah, and those verses are about the one who opposed the Messiah, the one who was appointed to stand against the Messiah. And so the vacancy in the apostleship is not about Judas's death, but it's about his apostasy, his rebellion, his turning away from the office. The scriptures that need to be fulfilled are, are scriptures about the office of the one who was appointed to stand against Jesus being given to another. And the lot, as it happens, uh, fell on Matthias, number 12. He was added to their number. And we'd like to get distracted, I'm sure, uh, about the fate of Judas uh, which is touched on there in passing with Luke's uh, editorial insert, uh, just to remind us what happened. Uh, but that's not the issue at hand in this passage. The issue at hand in this passage is Judas's apostasy. He's turning away from that office of, of the 12th apostle to go to his own place, to go his own way. And as for Judas's replacement here, Matthias, well, I'm sure we'd like to get distracted following up him a little bit more as well. Uh, but actually, everything you need to know about Matthias is right here in this passage. You won't find his name written in the Bible again. And by word count, Luke affords Matthias about as much space as the other guy, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice. In fact, the Bible doesn't say much about any of these 12 men beyond their name, and half the time even that changes. And so 
We don't get to hear their stories. We don't get to hear what ministry work that they got up to. Even in Luke's book of Acts here, the Acts of the Apostles, he's really only going to follow the ministry work of one of those men. And really it's just a fraction of the ministry work of one of those men. It's not because the others weren't doing ministry work. It's not because Peter was only doing ministry work some of the time. It's because Luke has been selective about what he puts in this passage as he takes us on a a much bigger picture journey. So as we ponder over who these disciples are, we, we, we don't get very far. Clearly there's something important about the twelveness of this apostolic office. Twelve were called and twelve there must be. But who they are doesn't seem to be what we need to know. Instinctively then, I think we turn to how questions and I think we probably got questions about how all this goes down, particularly at the mode of Matthias's calling there right at the end of the passage uh, with casting lots. So if I'm not mistaken, there's questions there, so let's dig into that. First of all, uh, when it comes to this point, notice that uh, apostleship isn't random. It isn't based on gut feel. The 11 have a very clear understanding of what the requirements for this ministry are. And let's just say the requirements for this ministry, this office, uh, are exclusive, very exclusive. Specifically, the the, the new 12th must be someone who's also been an eyewitness of all of Jesus' earthly ministry, having witnessed everything that is from Luke chapter 3 all the way up until last week's passage at the beginning of Acts. And that reminds us, of course, that there's always been more disciples around than just these 12 apostles. And that reminds us uh, and makes us realize that this office of 12 apostles is something very distinctive. It's very special. Uh, These 12 men were called out from among all the other disciples, all the other brothers and sisters that were following Jesus. They were called out specially and set aside in a special way as Jesus' representatives and they were given authority to match that calling. Luke told us in his Gospel, in chapter 6, verse 13, And when the day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And now, to fulfill the scriptures, the eleven prepare candidates so that Jesus can call another twelfth man to replace Judas Iscariot's part in this apostolic ministry. But as with the original calling of the twelve, the deciding factor is what only God can know. The choice has to be the Lord's because he is the knower of the heart. And the apostles concede that much and they leave the choice and the calling up to him. Having sorted out all the prerequisites for the office that that the the candidates have to be eyewitnesses of Jesus' whole ministry between his baptism and his ascension, uh, they put forward two men and commit their task in prayer to the Lord. They ask him to appoint the right man to show them whom he will choose, Joseph or Matthias. Which one will the Lord choose as the twelfth apostle? Matthias. And most of our questions about the how of all this probably centres around the, the method there, the casting lots bit in verse 26. I'm sure you've got questions. I might not be able to resolve all your concerns about that this morning, but let me give you a few things just to factor into your thinking about verse 26. To begin with, on a, 
On a technical note, notice that the word for lot there in verse 26 is the same word as it happens up in verse 17 for Judas's share in this ministry in the original text where it says in verse 17, for Judas was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. That, that word share there is actually the same word for lot in verse 26. And furthermore, the word allotted there in verse 17 uh, is actually the word, the verb that's typically used for, for casting lots. And of course, as far as we know, Judas Iscariot wasn't chosen by casting lots. And so uh, rather what's happening here is that uh, there's flexibility as to how this language gets used, sometimes literally, sometimes not literally. And uh, the actual point of casting lots, of course, is to determine whose lot this will be and whose lot that will be. It's a method of deciding. Uh, uh, Judas, uh, probably in non-literal terms, we would think, from what the scriptures tell us, Judas was given his lot, his share in this ministry, uh, when Jesus called him. He was appointed to his role. On the other side of that technical note, in verse 26, the word there, uh, uh, the verb, uh, it isn't the, the verb that's typically used for casting lots when it comes to Matthias. It actually says in the Greek text that they gave lots to them. Uh, or perhaps, uh, like verse 17, we can say they gave shares or roles to them and, and the, the lot or, or share fell to Matthias. But having covered off, off on all that technical stuff, uh, you know, we can put that away and put it aside because the reality is they probably did settle this by casting lots in that physical, literal sense. As much as that might upset us, we need to come to terms with it. We need to respect uh, our cultural distance here from first century Palestine if we're going to find any peace with this passage. The reality is that using lots was actually common in Israel. It was a common way, a common method they could use for deciding matters and, and, and it was deciding openly, transparently, uh, publicly uh, and with no take-backs, no oh, best of threes, no best of fives, come on, best of sevens. It's none of that. It's open, it's public, it's instant, it's done. And if, we, if we're picturing rolling dice, which is kind of what I picture, then we're probably better off picturing stones or straws. It's not like playing Yahtzee. It's a way of deciding. It's like drawing, drawing straws or choosing stones, I guess, in our culture. And the fact of the matter is it was, it was a matter that was actually uh, sanctioned by God for Israel to use. It was sanctioned by God for Israel to use. In Leviticus chapter 16, for example, God instructed Moses to have Aaron, the priest, choose which goat would be used for the sin sacrifice by casting lots, by casting two lots over two goats. One would receive a stone that had God's name written on it and that would be the goat who would be used for the sacrifice. The other lot would determine which goat goes free. That was the method of casting lots that God instructed Aaron to use. In Joshua chapter 23, Joshua allotted territories, the lands of their enemies, uh, to the tribes of Israel as they entered into the promised land. Uh, in First Chronicles, lots were assigned, uh, were used to assign cities to the Levites to inherit, uh, to determine the duties of all the musicians as they prepared for temple worship, to uh, uh, allocate which gates around the city walls would be occupied by which families of gatekeepers. In the book of Nehemiah, 
as they returned. Uh, the priests and the Levites and the people cast lots for the wood offerings. Uh, they, 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 they chose uh, lots as they returned from exile. They, 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 they cast lots to determine which one out of every ten people would get to live in Jerusalem and which nine out of every ten people would have to live in the surrounding countryside. Poetically, it seems to me, Isaiah in, in chapter 34 of his uh, book speaks of the Lord casting the lot for the wildlife, speaking about the restoration of creation and that sort of thing. So as much as this sort of offends our modern and Christian conscience a little bit, uh, casting lots was actually biblical. It was something that God instructed them to do in Leviticus and it was something evidently that was done by their leaders like Samuel and Aaron and, and Joshua and David, uh, or at least... Under their supervision, this happened. It was a common and approved method of deciding matters in Israel, which, of course, is the context that these 12 apostles are sitting in, that, 12, that upper room as they wait for the Holy Spirit. Uh, secondly, notice that uh, their, their uh, result of their lot was validated in chapter 2, just coming up. I'm sure we're looking forward to chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Surely that validates what's just happened. If they've committed some kind of mistake here or gone off on their own tangent or, or, or committed some error, we, we would expect a comment pointing that out to us. But no, the narrative just flows on and the Holy Spirit flows down exactly as promised. And thirdly, notice that in the same way that Jesus prayed before he originally called these 12, these guys now pray before casting lots over these two men, Joseph and Matthias. And they asked the Lord to reveal his will by this. Verse 24 says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. They committed the process in prayer to God. But again, that just instinctively probably offends us or, or, or unsettles us. But again, perhaps it is us who need to cross a cultural bridge here instead of forcing our views onto that context. This proverb captures uh, the relevant mindset in Israel. Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap but its every decision is from the Lord. Is it possible, I wonder, uh, that we might actually have something to learn from that culture that seems so far away about the sovereignty of God? Do we trust that Jesus can speak a coin into the mouth of a fish in the lake and doubt that he can choose his twelfth apostle by the casting of a stone. How sovereign was God when uh, Jonah was correctly identified by casting lots by the sailors on that boat heading to Tarshish? How sovereign was God over the lot then? How sovereign was God over the lot when Saul was publicly verified by casting lots, first by tribe, then by clan, and then by individual. He was publicly verified to all the people as the, the king that uh, God had already anointed in the story earlier by the prophet Samuel. But just so that everyone should know and for all to see and so that there's no takebacks, no best of threes or any of that, it's just done. God casts lots by Samuel and everyone can see whom he has chosen. And the lot fell true 
given the, given the population of Israel at the time, I don't know, but the probability of that's got to be like one chance in maybe a few million possibilities. As I wrestled with this, I realised that rather than being concerned or offended, there's probably something I can learn here about the sovereignty of God. There's food for thought here in all of this. I'm not suggesting that we start settling things by casting lots. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that we don't try to force our awareness on the apostles' cultural context. This is actually the last mention of lots in the Bible and it just happens to be a day or whatever before the Holy Spirit is poured out onto God's people. Uh, but we need to appreciate what context they were in in that week. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. They did what Israel had always done. They did what God had authorised for Israel to do. Perhaps we who now have the Holy Spirit could learn something about that from the sovereignty of God, from their context. Maybe as spirit-filled believers, we could learn to pray in the way that they prayed, that God would reveal his will. That Pray in a way that, uh, that, that suggests that we truly trust that God hears us and is sovereign to do something. Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. Anyway, I digress. As much as the, the how of all this is intriguing and we want to get to the end of it, the thrust of the passage isn't about that either. The who just left us unsatisfied. All we want to know about the ministry uh, these men got up to is just left to our imagination. And the how has only left their calling of, 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 of Matthias a little bit outside of our cultural understanding. Only the Lord knew the hearts of these men and, and so he is the one who called Matthias. If it's not about who these men are or how they were chosen, then my brain starts asking why, why, why has Luke included this passage here? What, what are we to get out of this? It's clearly important, this twelveness uh, of the apostles, because it's the only thing that, that Luke's recorded from that week. So what do we do with it? I mean, beyond the fact that there are twelve apostles... There doesn't seem to be much that we can grasp at here. And I think that's just it. I think that's just it. I think the reason that Luke has included this account here is all about the apostolic office and the twelveness that was restored here. Which leads me to a couple of big why questions. Why does that apostolic office matter? And why does there need to be twelve? Well, there's a definite calling of these 12 apostles in the Bible and so the office obviously matters. We might look at why Jesus originally called them from among all the other disciples that were gathered around him. Mark chapter 3 says, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Matthew elaborates a little bit more. We read, I'll just pick out a few bits from the, the passage we read this morning, in Matthew chapter 10. And, and Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And these, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers and cast out demons. The Gospels tell us that the 12 apostles were called to an office of witness and learning under Jesus. 
to a role of being with him, learning from him, an office of preaching then his words about the kingdom and an office of authority, authority such that can cast out demons, an authority such that can heal every affliction and an authority that can raise the dead. The narrative coming up is going to confirm that all of that is still true. These apostles are going to go and do those things. We've got that to look forward to. These 12 are going to continue all that Jesus originally called them for. And this time they're not going to do it just before the Jews, as he instructed them in Matthew's Gospel while he was still with them. Now they're going to do it to the ends of the earth, before the Gentiles. That's the expanded commission there back in verse 8. They will witness in Jerusalem uh, and head out to to the ends of the earth with this message. And they'll go with Jesus' direct appointment and they will go with Jesus' full authority. They'll proclaim his name and his kingdom with an authority that heals every affliction, that casts out demons, and that raises the dead. I hope you're looking forward to this narrative. This office of the Twelve Apostles is crucial to Luke's understanding of the events that he goes on to record. Notice that they, they pray here to Jesus that he would show them who would replace Judas in this ministry and apostleship. Verse 25 says, they're not just asking him to show them who will join in the mission generally, who will be added to their number generally. They're asking very specifically who will join them in this particular office of 12 men whom Jesus called apostles. As much as you and I might like to use the word apostle in the more general sense from time to time, there is simply something unique and necessary about these 12. They've got a particular Ministry. They've got a foundational ministry. We need to make sure we've locked that in. And why does there need to be 12? Well, as Peter says, because the scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus chose 12 and 12 there must be as we transition now from all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up and we transition into what he continued to do and teach uh, as he sends his Holy Spirit and begins building his church through his people, beginning with these 12 men. We can put the pieces together from various passages throughout the Bible that the twelveness, if I can keep calling it that, it it corresponds to the changeover that is happening here. Jesus has fulfilled everything, you see, that God has promised all through these scriptures. He is the one through whom salvation has now come. He is the true Israel. He is the true branch from the stump of Jesse. He is the true king of David's house. He's the one promised even way back in Genesis 3 who would come and save people from sin. All of God's promises in these scriptures find their yes in him, Jesus Christ the Saviour. And Israel was the vehicle by which he came and did what he did. You see, God works in real time and real space. We're going to find that out in this uh, book of Acts as well. He works in real time and real space. And so uh, when... uh, He promises that he's going to intervene. He intervenes in real time and real space. And it was 2,000 years ago in Israel. Of course, he promised that all the way up, leading up to the event, uh, that that's how he would do it. But perhaps we don't put too much stock in Israel's role in all of that. Uh, Symbolically, those 12 tribes of Israel have now been superseded by these 12 apostles. The blessing that Israel could only deliver to the world through its rejected and crucified Messiah is now going to flow to the world, to the ends of the earth, through these 12 men to begin with. 
or if you like to think of it this way, the 12 tribes of Israel symbolise or, or represent the promise God made throughout scriptures and these 12 men represent the fulfilment of that promise that God made. They represent the new covenant that is in Jesus' blood that has been poured out for all who believe. And to all who did believe, he gave the right to become children of God. So what this passage is really about is the people of God. It's about the people of God. Over and against those 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 men symbolize and represent the true people of God as being the people of Jesus, the people who are following Jesus, the people who have put their trust in his blood shed for them on that cross. This is all about the changeover from promise to fulfillment now. God's people are not the ethnic lineage of Israel. God's people are those who trust in him. And this apostolic witness we have in front of us is what reveals God's true people as these apostles testify to Jesus Christ crucified. These 12 men are going to play a foundational role in how Jesus begins building his church. And their apostolic witness is now basically what is documented for us in these New Testament scriptures. Their function their symbolic representation of God's people, the criteria that they had to meet in order to serve in this particular office, their direct appointment by Jesus. That's all unique. It's very unique. And so this particular uh, apostleship, this particular office, this capital A apostleship, if you want, is distinct. It's something that cannot be repeated. It's something that need not be repeated. So, for example, later on when the Apostle James uh, is killed in the story coming up, spoiler alert, there is no need for the Apostles to replace him. It's not about Judas's death. It's about Judas's apostasy. And this is about restoration of the promise. So when the other Apostles die, there's no need to continue appointing people. Matthias has completed the office. He's, he's fulfilled the scriptures for the purpose of this changeover as the true people of God are now going to be revealed as these 12 men take the witness forwards to the ends of the earth. And the message, as I say, that these apostles testified to is what I covered at the start, uh, that Jesus Christ died for our sin. And on the third day, he rose again. He's defeated sin and death and everyone who repents in and trusts in him uh, will be forgiven unto eternal life. And if you believe that apostolic witness then rejoice because you belong to the people of God. You have been revealed as a person of God because you believe in his witness. What's Luke's point in recording this for us? What's even the point of their 12? Well, if nothing else, it's for our comfort and our assurance that we are people of God. These things demonstrate that God's promises are sure, that his scriptures will be fulfilled to every last detail. And these 12 men represent the new covenant that he has promised to us in Jesus' blood. This covenant declares that everyone who trusts in it belongs to the people of God, whether they're in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or somewhere towards the ends of the earth. That is what the people of God are, the people who believe this apostolic witness. If you haven't yet come to accept that, that truth about Jesus Christ or if you've got questions about this gospel or questions about this passage or if there's something you need prayer for or anything, please uh, catch me after the service. But otherwise, let's sing.